This is Paradoxical, the podcast about the psychology behind big success in small business. I'm your host, Steve McCready, and today my guest is Ben Christensen from Cambium Carbon. Hey, Ben, how are you doing today? Doing great. I'm really excited to be here. I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I told you I was in Sacramento and the unofficial nickname of Sacramento used to be the city of trees and they went and changed it to like the farm to fork capital of America, which pretty much everyone in the city has been like, huh? And we all still call it the city of trees because we are fortunate to have a really, really nice canopy of trees here. And so when I heard about what you're doing, being someone who lives in a place where I really value the urban canopy and really love trees and such, I was like, this is someone I really got to talk to. So introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, and what Cambium Carbon is all about. We, we just did a, a planting in Sacramento, actually, so we can, we can circle back um, on that awesome. as well. What we do, so we're Cambium Carbon. We're on a mission to make local scalable. It's what that means for us is instead of having big global emissions intense supply chains to source materials, having really hyper local materials that are available at a high volume. And so we are really focused on wood as our first material. So wood across the country is really sourced by cutting down trees. We end up shipping them often really far, often across an ocean. We ship them back to a distributor and eventually they may reach a building or a home. Our model is to utilize salvage material. So there's about 36 million trees that come down in and around U.S. cities every year. It's this crazy volume. The vast majority of them are wasted mulched, landfill, burned. And what we are really focused on doing is capturing those materials and then turning them into a higher value use. So what does that end up looking like for a customer or for a business? It means working with somebody who's purchasing wood to buy locally instead of you know purchasing from really far away. And then the last thing that we're really committed to is we're a public benefit corporation and we've committed 15% of our profits back into urban canopies. And so we're focused on tree equity and that, that tree planting I mentioned we just did in Sacramento, that's you know part of us giving back into the communities where we're salvaging materials from. So I want to talk a little bit more about this supply chain thing, because this was when I, I saw one of your talks online and that's how I became aware of you. And when you were talking about the supply chain thing, I was listening to this and I'm like, one, this is ridiculous. And two, how is this profitable? So tell a little bit more about like how that works and how it actually manages to be something that's actually profitable for businesses to do it, but also a little bit about why it's not a good way to approach things. Cause there's really, I know a heavy environmental impact of that, that people might not be thinking about. So go into that a bit more. When you think about traditional, again, material supply chains, we largely live in an extractive economy, right? We're taking virgin resources from the land, from the forest, from mountains, and we're processing them often at really, really high volume, again, with questionable you know, environmental, social integrity, and we're shipping them really, really far. All of that works because of the scale of production, but one of the big things that that's caused, you know, we've seen manufacturing really offshored, um, you know, in the U.S. And part of what we're really trying to do is bring back jobs and bring back, you know, manufacturing and that capacity in and around our cities. And so when we think about what really drives our profitability, one is it's utilizing a local material that's already being wasted. And so we have partners and suppliers across the country who are capturing you know, that material that's coming down in and around cities and they're processing it, um, but they're not processing at really high volumes yet. And that's sort of the key that we're really trying to scale 
is by creating big, consistent demand, getting larger recurring contracts, you can help local businesses scale because then they know where the money's coming from. They can make investments into new financing, into new equipment, and then they can grow to meet that. It's much harder to really grow your business quickly when you're committed every day to finding a new customer that's a different customer and you sell them one item like a fancy table and then they're only going to ever buy one dining table and then you have to go and find another person and another person. And so by changing that sort of dynamic, we're able to connect these small producers into large contracts, which then unlocks the value there. And in terms of profitability, what really changes the system here is you don't have to ship the material far. Moving wood is very heavy. You can utilize that waste stream. And then ultimately, you can also really sell this and compete with premium products across the country. This is really interesting to see like this idea. First off, it's just kind of amazing to me how no one's done this sooner, right? How no one's like, hey, wait a second, all these trees that we're like dumping into landfills and doing all and burning and doing this other stuff with maybe we could do something with them. So how did you come to the idea behind this and then take that into turning it into a company? I grew up in around forestry. You know, my dad's a construction worker and a carpenter. I grew up in the shop and I've always been connected to wood. I've also also really been focused on addressing climate change at scale. Sort of the aha moment for me was I was at a, a grocery store in Albuquerque where I grew up and I just left this local sort of salvage reuse lumber yard. And I was walking into the grocery store and out front, there was a bunch of bundles of firewood. And I was like, oh, I wonder where that's from. And I came and I looked at it and it was from Estonia. And I just left a site like half a mile away from the grocery store that had unlimited amount of wood that would have been great to burn. And so just thinking about why we're cutting down trees in you know Europe and shipping them into New Mexico when we have all of this material here that we're just wasting doesn't make any sense. And I'm certainly not the first person to think about this. And what we've really benefited from as a company um, and we're really trying to enable is Lots of people have been doing work on this for a long time. So there's been a ton of folks who have identified this for years and years and years and have built businesses around it. What we're really trying to do as a company is create the connective tissue for those local businesses to scale, right? I think there's something that's pretty different about, you know, running a business that, you know, is operating within a region versus one that is tapping into sort of a national context. And so we're creating that with our technology, with our brand, um, you know, with our sales functionality and really creating all of that across the board. As you, you find these local wood resources, basically I'll call them right. When whatever form that they have talk about the process of, taking those and turning them into, into products. Like what happens there? Part of what you're touching on, not to zoom out too existentially here first, but I think something that we undervalue as a culture is this idea of uniqueness. And what I mean by that is we've sort of become obsessed with producing everything exactly the same, right? And what we live in is this economy where we are optimizing for the maximum possible output of the exact same product. And that doesn't have to be true. Um, and when you think about something a little more broadly, 
you don't have to give up quality to have a little bit of character or uniqueness in products, but it also requires a different attention to how you actually produce the material. And so where I'm going with that is, you know, when you're dealing with a waste material versus a virgin input, it's different. It's complicated. You know, you have different species, you have a mix of quality that, that really enters your supply chain, and it takes a little bit more care to deal with, to tranche, and to, to really move. And so what we are really trying to enable, this is what our R&D hub does, this is what our suppliers do across the country, is they take the time to sort through that, to sort through that material and process it at really high volume. The exciting thing there is you can do that without sacrificing quality. You can do that without sacrificing cost. And what it really is, is it's an opportunity to create more jobs and to use something locally because you get all these benefits from the other sides of the value chain that I was just describing. So it doesn't end up actually being significantly more expensive to do this type of processing, but it does require a different attention and a different value on, on waste. Is what I'm inferring from that is that, uh, you know, your products, there's I don't want to use the word inconsistency because that is a kind of a negative thing, but there's, there's some variability to them as far as look, feel, maybe other things. And so how do you deal with that element of things compared to what people might be used to when it comes to wood products? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about what we're producing, it comes across in several different ways. So we have lots of wood that can be completely one for one with industry material. We often also have done, and we've done this a number of times in sort of customer AB tests where we've put our material up versus, you know, the industry material and ours is preferred. And so part of that is you get richer colors, more character, wood that is, you know, a little bit more charismatic. And it's just, it's, it's a little bit ineffable, but people feel it. They choose it when they see it. And then I think the other part of that is we also have a good bit of material that does fall into, it's got some variability, but it's purely aesthetic. It's not structural. And, you know, I think one of the big things there is that I, I think about this all the time, but our preferences as people, it's it's very much, you know, just informed by what we're told to like. And if we can expand our mind and see something as unique and beautiful and be like, wow, the table I just got is one of a kind, you know, there's truly no other table like this. That then allows us to, again, utilize a resource, reinvest in our communities and really value something that we have in our spaces. And I think that's that's something that you see what happens when you just have the sameness and you have the mass production. You don't care about it, right? You don't talk about it. You know, you get that table from IKEA. You don't go and tell people like, oh, this is this table I got from IKEA and you know I went there and I got some meatballs. You don't tell the story of you know how you got that. But when you get a material from Sacramento used with local Sacramento trees and that has reinvested in new trees and maybe you get invited to the tree planting as well, it's like, wow, this becomes this whole story that helps you feel connected to your space. And so we really believe that we can get people there um, and we really see people who really want to do that. And then we see that individually. We also see that with large companies. And I think that's that's what's really exciting here. One of the things that struck me when I was learning about you and watching one of the talks that you had given was that you really clearly seem to have an awareness of the importance and power of story that really, really stuck out to me. And I'm hearing that here. How did you come to understand that? And how have you really built that into what you're doing here? 
I grew up as a relatively creative kid, took art, always loved creative writing, played music, and I I still do all of those things. And I think one of the biggest things that I found is that creativity is a muscle. When I am playing more music, my art is better. When I'm writing creatively, my strategic thinking for my business is better. And I think that often we sort of think about creativity and business planning as separate entities. I really believe that they're they're similar. And, And one thing that I've been doing that I've found to be a very helpful way for me to approach situations with a broader perspective is I do creative writing around, you know, an upcoming challenge I'm going to have. So we were in a negotiation, you know, with a company and we basically had these two individuals who were sort of coming in really difficult into the negotiation about this contract. And so I did a bunch of creative writing around, you know, putting that in a totally different setting with the same sort of dynamics in the relationship and just like exploring what could happen. And in that, I found some different routes of how to approach it, tested it out, and we ended up having a great outcome. And so part of that is how do you use creativity and storytelling to actually create real value? And I find the two to be pretty linked. Um, And I think that what I found is it works for me individually. And then obviously when we're talking about sharing the story, it's, it's very important as well. Talk about the trees from the national mall. Yeah. I heard you talk about that and I was just like, Oh, it's like, wow, that's so, so powerful. So tell, tell that story if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, and it's really exciting. I was actually there um, in DC this past weekend, but you know, we're coming up on um, the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And one of the the pieces there is he delivered it at the National Mall, incredibly moving, massive crowds there, huge moment um, you know, in the civil rights movement. And what literally happened that day is all of those people, Dr. King included, were exhaling, right? They're breathing out. And what was happening is the trees along the mall were breathing in. And so that is like a physical capture of that moment and of those people and of this waypoint in our history as a country. And that goes into the wood of these trees. And, you know, we had one of those trees come down park service, um, you know, again, traditionally is sending those to landfill. We were able to, you know, help salvage it. And now we're working with um, the civil rights museum to put that in with a local artist to tell the story for an installation there. And that's really, really exciting um, because what it is, is it connects us to that moment and it's, it's real. (laughs) The carbon that came out of everybody, you know, in their breath is back in that material. And so I think there's something that's really powerful about stories like that. Oh, absolutely. It's so interesting to think about the one, just it's a good reminder too, right? About how the important role that trees play in our environment, in our ecosystem, but really recognizing like, oh my gosh, yeah, they're actually in a sense recording part of what was there. And this tree that otherwise would have just been, you know, lost or whatever is now actually been captured and been able to be repurposed in a way that represents that history, but also like literally contains a piece of that history. And it's like, one, it's just really cool. But two, hearing you talk about it, it, this, this really shows that you understand, I think the power of story of, and, and how these things really are relevant. But I really love what you're saying about connecting that in to business. Cause I, I think that is an area that a lot of people, especially with smaller business, maybe don't necessarily understand as, as well as they could 
is that story is really, really powerful. We like to think we're all logical, but at the end of the day, sure. that's not necessarily true. And, and story has power. It's like you, you were talking about it. It's like, no one's like, Hey, look at this table I got from Ikea. Cause it's like, yeah, I know I have the same one and you could mix them and no one would know versus the uniqueness of any given product. And, you know, you see that with any, any number of things. So coming back to the products and your wood, so, you know, you capture this wood from the various places that you do, and then tell her like how it gets turned into materials that can be you utilized to build and create, and then who's taking those, turning them into things and how it kind of ends up, you know, in someone's living room as a, as you know, as a coffee table or, um, in their dining room or wherever, wherever it ends up. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you think about bringing wood to market, you know, you think about sort of three key steps. You have to source the material, you have to process the material, and then you have to get it to a buyer. What that really looks like in our value chain is you have that source material. So that's cities, arborists, utilities, folks who are managing forests that are not traditionally used for forestry. And so those are park trees, they're trees next to streams, they're in and around utility lines. And so there's this massive volume of material there. And for those folks, you know, when a tree comes down in a storm, when it ages out, when it gets a disease, you have to take those trees down. And what happens right now is they're basically sending them to landfill, they're cutting them into mulch, what we help them do is connect into local processors. So it's an alternative disposal cost that you can do for basically for free. So you actually save money on the sourcing side by being able to drop off your material at low to no cost. And then the processors, you know, this amazing network of woodworkers, manufacturers, you know, sawmills across the country, take that material. And there's really two big steps. You know, it's, it's a lot more complicated than this, but high level, there's two big steps. You have to process the material. So when you're doing sort of your initial slabbing or milling, and then you have to dry the material. Drying is actually a really tricky part of the process, but it's very important in terms of producing a wood product that has longevity and that can last. And so what we do is then we take, um, you know, that dried lumber or, you know, dried slab and we're connecting it into secondary processing. So think a furniture manufacturer, and then ultimately that's going into a company or into a buyer. We just launched publicly our first product with room and board on an exciting national launch with a really big furniture company. And now anybody across the country can purchase a material that was salvaged from local orchards in Northern California was produced with a manufacturer in Southern Oregon and has a huge carbon savings compared to traditional materials. So we're really excited about materials like that and have a lot more stories coming through very soon. It's interesting because it's like there's this mix, I guess, of small and big here, right? On the one hand, you're really building like, like an, and really a network, right? You're, you're being, as you said, the connective tissue, which I really see here, that's connecting all of these small businesses and all of these people from different places and really giving them something that's that's very valuable. So from the, the processing standpoint, are the things that you're processing, are we talking about where you end up with, you know, things like, you know, wood planks or solid pieces of wood? Is there any of it that is any kind of thing that would be analogous to like, say, not necessarily MDF, but more in that kind of a thing where it's a kind of a hybrid thing or talk a little bit about the different types of actual products that you produce? Yeah, absolutely. So the great news is that it can be used for almost anything. You know, the majority of what we're 
using it for right now is architectural elements. So think sort of flooring, siding, cladding, material that is non-structural and is generally hardwood. So that's sort of where we are today and where the supply chain generally is. What we're moving into, you know, is a lot of exciting new and really scalable materials. So materials like plywood processing and putting, you know, really high volume into uh, a laminate like that into materials like cross laminated timber. So we're working with a really large company on their data centers to actually produce cross laminated timber, which is a way that you can essentially connect boards together to produce a structural material. So there's uh, a ton of exciting opportunity there. And then there's a lot of even more nascent technologies. There's this really cool company called Inventwood that basically can process wood and create it um, to be have a similar sort of structural and strength density as steel, um, but they can do it for way lower cost and for a much lighter product. And so that also is a great example of ways that we can utilize a material in a ton of ton of new ways. And so we're seeing a lot of different uses there. So much possibility, it sounds like, and just a lot of interesting things on the horizon, a lot of things coming, which is really cool. Do you track how much material you're saving from landfills or other other types of things? How much wood are we talking about here that you're interfacing with on a regular basis? It's a lot of wood. You know, we're just at the tip of the iceberg of the total volume of this material. But you know, if we were to think about how much wood we waste globally, it results in about one and a half gigatons of carbon emissions annually. So the gigaton is a billion tons. And what it looks like is all of the U.S. emissions are somewhere around seven gigatons a year. And so we're talking like a massive, massive volume. If we could you know, save all of that carbon that's coming out of wasted wood, it's equivalent to removing four times over all of the cars in America. There's a huge, huge volume there, right? So really big opportunity to eliminate that material. Again, we're just at the tip of the iceberg on our platform within our supply chain right now. We have about 1.5 million board feet. So that's a great start, but that should be scaling. Ultimately, the upper end potential is around four to five billion board feet in the U.S. And so if you can see how how far we have to go to close that gap, so it's really far. It's also what's exciting there is there's, there's tons of opportunity and there's tons of opportunity for the industry. You know, we're a big believer that rising tide lifts all boats, you know, when we're really committed to the carbon negative economy, when we're working to create local jobs, it's not just about one company being centered in it. You know, we're really trying to create the enabling conditions for lots of companies to flourish in the space. One other thing I want to ask about as it relates to the different things that you're doing is the reforestation hubs. Tell me a little bit about those and how you're establishing those, growing them, that sort of thing. Something that's pretty important is that when you're building and you're working to do systems change, you have to work across a group of stakeholders and across a group of entities. And so what we really see is we work with lots of different groups. We end up working with big folks in the built environment, you know, large furniture manufacturers, big project developers. We end up working with a lot of different investors, you know, on that side, a totally different space. We work with local wood products producers, sawmills, you know, that space. We work with tree companies, arborists. And then there's this other sort of core component, which is municipalities and cities. And so we're really excited to have our first pilot officially 
up and running in Philadelphia. And so what that actually looks like is cities actually manage a lot of these forests. They end up paying lots of money to the tune of millions and millions of dollars a year, just under a billion dollars a year annually to dispose of wood waste across the country. So cities are paying a billion dollars to get rid of a material that we could be using. It's pretty crazy. And so what you can do is if you're actually saving that material, you can create new value for cities. And so what we're doing in Philadelphia is we're working with the city. We're helping them manage some of that waste. We're working with a local workforce development nonprofit. So folks with barriers to employment, you know, a lot of formerly incarcerated youth, folks who have challenges, you know, sort of breaking into industry, who get long-term job access and training and trades to actually staff and run and build the site. And then what we're really doing is we're connecting that material into some big buyers. And then we're reinvesting it into new trees and spaces that have been traditionally overlooked. So it creates this real circular economy. It saves the city's money. It creates new economic value. It creates jobs training. And then it also invests in natural climate solutions. So it's this really amazing holistic story. So we just are launching and we milled our first log um, in Philadelphia about three weeks ago. So we're really excited about that. And we've got our next eight cities that we're starting to move forward into and really hoping to scale nationally there. This will be a good lead into what I also wanted to talk about more in the the business structural side, which is how you manage all of this. Because like as we're talking, I'm just like, I'm thinking like there's these partnerships and these partnerships and these connections and these different people. There's so many different people you're intersecting with here is the thing that I'm that I'm hearing. And more as you work on growing. So tell me about how, as, as a business, um, how you manage all of that. Cause it, it seems a little overwhelming as I'm hearing about it here. I'll say two things. One, just to answer the question of why, like, why are we trying to do that? Cause we hear this a lot. You know, we hear this from investors, we hear this from partners. It's like, ah, it just feels like you're trying to do everything. And what we say is the answer is yes. And we think that that is critical. And we think not trying to do everything is actually irresponsible. And what we mean by that is it doesn't mean that every business needs to touch, you know, as many different stakeholders as we're trying to touch. But we do believe that, you know, we're in this position where we have an economy that's killing our planet because businesses have had such a single-minded approach. They haven't had a holistic view of the system. And what we're really trying to do is just have a broader perspective there. Does that mean we're actually going to do every single step? Absolutely not. Our goal is to help enable and, and have a lot of strong partners who can do a lot of that. But we really believe it's important. And I think that's that's sort of a foundational piece. And so what that translates into, into managing it. So we take that very seriously. And I think something you know we think about all the time, and this is something I care about a lot, is that you can set these big goals and every business has goals that you're going after, but it's really determined on how you actually function. And, you know, I think this is not surprising, but the amount of friction that happens internally within companies is unbelievable. And so one of the biggest things we focused on is having a very, very dialed process. We are constantly iterating on it. We spend a lot of time on what we call meta solutions, where if we get this right, it then allows five or seven problems underneath it to be solved. And a lot of that is about communication. It's about information sharing. It's about decision making. And it's about committing to processes that allow you to scale. And so we spend a ton of time on that. And that, that translates into being able to, to function across sectors. How, um, how many employees do you have at this point? Uh, we have 25. Say a little bit more about that, both from the standpoint of 
how you've gone about building the, the company from finding people, bringing people in, how, especially why there's so many, what feels like so many balls in the air all the time. Again, it seems, I think it's amazing that you're doing it, but I'm also, again, like my brain's like, this is a lot. I'm really curious how they're managing all of it. I, I would say two things on it. One is we are very quick to acknowledge that we're doing it imperfectly. And I think that's part of it. And I think that's really important from a leadership perspective, but also throughout the company is we know that it's not perfect. And we know that our systems and our processes, we miss things. Um, and we also know we have a ton of room to grow. But by being very forward with that, by being okay with that, that allows us to spend time optimizing and spend time on the problem itself instead of being caught in like, hey, are we actually acknowledging the problems as real? So I think that's really important. I think the second thing I would say is we think a lot about telescoping. So this idea of creating systems that allow you to think at the different levels that you need to think. And I think something that I really believe is that everyone at different spots in the organization has to focus on what their core role is. But you can't function really effectively as an individual, as a sub-team, as a team, or as an organization without connectivity across the board. And so what I mean by that and what we really focus on is how can you actually capture that in a system? So what that looks like for us is it's constantly going from heads up to heads down. And so thinking about, all right here's the big connective goal. How do we quickly and consistently tie that into everyday work? And then how do we tie that into a weekly view and a monthly view? And there's lots of different systems to do that. But I think the biggest part that we focus on that allows us to do this, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is narrative. And so we spend time as a team, as individuals, very intentionally trying to understand each of us within the company narrative and within our own self-narrative as people. And so that is the sort of through line that connects you to, okay, I'm working on this project this week, but it connects into this bigger company goal. And, you know, it also connects into my personal goal. And that sort of allows focus, I think, in the right way. This is really interesting. It's reminding me a little bit of what you were saying earlier as it relates to, uh, to your products and the whole efficiency at the cost of identity piece. Because that's, again, people get caught up in efficiency. And I think one of the things that happens in a business structurally, like I think a lot of people would hear what you're saying right now and be like, that's ridiculous. You don't have time to do all that. You just need to get these people like here and here's what you need to do and just get them head down focused on doing what they're doing. I agree with you that that's not, not the way to do it. And I really like what you're doing. I'm curious about what you've seen about how it affects productivity, output, and that, that kind of thing, because it's just a very different approach than I think what a lot of people would do or think of. But clearly, with what we talk about, all the things you've got going on and all the potential future projects, clearly it's working. So tell me a little bit about that. I think what we would say is you don't have time not to do that, right? And you know, one of the biggest things that we believe is Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And I think it's so easy and, and so many individuals, people, our whole world is centered on short-term thinking. And if you can zoom out a little bit and have a more macroscopic paradigm, you can see that making some of these initial investments into narrative, into process, they pay off in huge ways as you scale. And I think the other part of that is that it doesn't actually look like we spend a day every week and we're 
talking about like our creative story. That's not what we're doing. We're running a really efficient tactical process, but by being really dialed and also being focused on you lay the foundation and then you just connect back to that foundation. You connect back to it in little ways. You connect back to it for five minutes at the beginning of a meeting. You connect back to it through, you know, a reflection exercise that takes three minutes out of an entire week but you encourage your team to reflect for that amount of time and you get a huge value. I mean, another great example is we do something called postcard Fridays where the expectation is that every single person on the team writes one postcard to somebody in the business, to a customer, to somebody outside of it. What that does is it just increases our connectivity. How long does that take? Three minutes. It's a postcard. It's like four sentences, but it matters. Those things like impact people. And so again, to this point of, how to do it is it's critical. And also if you just do it efficiently and effectively, it's not some dramatic paradigm shift that pulls you away from doing sort of the center of your work. It just is very enabling. I love that. It's such a cool idea. Like it just, cause, and it really is an example of how these little things can be so impactful. I mean, especially something like a postcard, cause like who gets actual physical (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> letters or, or communication of any kind from somebody that's handwritten anywhere, right? It's like, what? What's this? Um, hey, send me your address and you'll, you'll be one of those people. Awesome. I, I will. <laughs> um, and, and it's it's really cool though. I, and I love what you're saying about this. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be big. And it really is, it's about maintaining the connection and remaking that connection and just being like, okay, let's, let's see this in the bigger picture. I think that that helps so much from the standpoint of providing drive for people, but also removing friction, right? It's kind of the thing of, I I use this, which is kind of a dramatic uh, metaphor sometimes, but it's like most of us, unless we're firefighters, wouldn't run into a burning building. But if our partner, our child, our pet was in there, we might. And I think that's the thing. When we connect people to something that matters to them, it's amazing how powerful that can be. And I think that's what you're talking about. And it seems like that's what you're really making a point to regularly connect to and tap into is what I'm seeing. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is, this is this interesting connection between, you know, you can, you can frame it as all of the different sides of how we understand the world. You can frame it as like connecting logical and thinking brain to feeling an emotional brain, or you can connect it to, you know, sort of storytelling and business operations, right? There's all of these pieces what I think is true is you have to connect them. And in doing so, you strengthen both sides. There's also organizations, and I think there's there's movement within business that I think goes way too far on the like, let's spend all our time thinking about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, you know, we're going to these extensive retreats that are like recentering these pieces. And it's like, that's probably way too far, you know? And there's a lot of people I've learned who are not interested in doing actual work every day. And also there's so many people that are blinded by this idea that we just treat work as sort of like a a widget creation, you know, in whatever form that is, is that we're just a vessel to produce something. It's like, that's not who we are. You know, like there's a reason that we love superhero movies and every story has a hero. Like we're interested in that. We're interested in being part of something and Connecting the two requires a paradigm from both, right? It requires the creativity to sort of engage and connect into that narrative. And then it also requires the thinking and the logic to operationalize that. And I think part of what you're touching on with that question that we care 
so much about, and this is what I think really drives value, is consistency. Have a system that allows you to rely on it without having to like think about it every day. And I think that's something that is very important too. That's very clearly here, the importance and the recognizing the value of system and the really leaning into that while at the same time, what I think you've done is you've built these parts into the system and into the process, the the connecting to the mission, the connecting to the why. I, I think of it as like the zooming in, zooming out kind of thing. You know, we're talking about telescoping, yep. the same kind of idea and and really doing that. Now, I think this is something that probably would speak very strongly to some people, maybe not to others. I don't know. So how have you gone about building the team of people that you have and identifying who's a fit for this, who might not be, and how do you integrate everyone into this system? I think it's something that we are, again, doing imperfectly, but constantly trying to, to get better and learn from. I think there's a few things that we've learned from integrating people into this. You know, The first is you have to have an interest in getting better. So you have to have you know an interest in growth. I think the second thing is you have to have sort of a values alignment. So you have to agree with our North Star. And if you don't deeply existentially agree with our North Star, then we're never going to figure out how to get there together. And so those are sort of classic value alignment. I think that the third thing, you know, which really ties into one of our core values, which is extreme ownership, is this idea of no ego. You know, when we focus on what we build, it's all about overall success. It's not about individual success. And, you know, having people who are quick and this is one of our our little hiring tests is how quickly does somebody transition from saying you all are doing this to saying we are doing this that's a narrative thing right that's a storytelling thing but are you telling the story of your work as me against the world or are you telling the story as us working with the world and those are very different ways to tell a story so that's something that we focus on and then i think the last thing that that is really critical you know when we think about hiring and working on these pieces is we also really hire for grit and we are looking for people who have shown an aptitude to deal with hard things and who are interested in dealing with hard things and who have you know a predilection to put themselves in challenging spaces so that they can get better and that, that ties into growth but it also ties into this grounded way in which people deal with problems and i think there's lots of individuals teams companies that you hit a problem and it becomes something that is insurmountable. My expression of this is, is ultra running. And what I learned sort of in, in really you know intense long races is that problems that can feel so big that are immediate, when you zoom out, they're nothing. And being stressed or creating your own problems around you know some challenge is so limiting. And so we're really focused on bringing in people who are okay with dealing with hard things um, and have you know an experience with that and are going to really push through it. I really love that and, and what you're talking about from the standpoint of one, really knowing what to, to assess for, but two, just the piece here, and I've heard this several times in our conversation here about what I would say maybe embracing the messiness of this, right? Really recognizing we're imperfect, it's a work in progress, it's going to be messy and that's okay. There's an allowance for that. And I think that it can be so freeing to people because it really does allow us to just to kind of go for it and recognize, sure, something may break, something may be messy, there's something there, but one, that's okay, it's inevitable. And it's really just about, let's take ownership of it. Let's 
deal with it, but don't be like, you know, when it happens, it's like, all right, whatever you, you spill a glass of water. It's like, yeah, go grab a towel and wipe it up, whatever, move on. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I think that's such a powerful thing when it's really like, I've seen companies that, you know, they talk like that, but when it actually comes to action, it's not necessarily so well supported, but I'm, I'm hearing just how big a deal that is to you and it sounds like that's something that you really are are very heavily committed to having as a kind of a core pillar of how you operate as a company. Absolutely. And I think just what you're saying is, in my mind, we haven't proved anything yet. We haven't done anything at a global scale. And until we do, it's a lot of talk and you know we have to prove it. Um, we have to act on it. And we have to act on it for years and years and years. And when I think about you know climate change as sort of this the core of my life's work, you know, it's a, it's a century, it's a, it's a millennial level problem. You know, you're not, we're not addressing this in a decade. We're not going to be addressing this in 50 years. This is our work as humanity for the next century. And so the big piece there is it's, it's one thing to be excited about these ideas or focused on these things for, you know, a little bit or for a year, for five years. But what matters is doing that for decades and doing that really, really consistently have I proved that yet? Absolutely not. And for us as a company, I think we have to like be very aware and candid about that, is that our work is, it is just beginning and that we need to stay really connected to it, you know, for the long term. And that's also why we invest when, you know, connecting to this narrative and building and strengthening, you know, our connection as a team, because we're not trying to think about, you know, a year or five years or 10 years, we're trying to think about really creating long-term impact. What is your ultimate vision for Cambian Carbon and what you would like to see happen over time as you continue to grow, refine, and and do more here? I struggle with this question a little bit because what I really believe in is our end state is a better process and a better way of doing it. But there's no there's no endpoint. You know, great, we hit you know our goal in ten years. Amazing. What's what's happening in the next ten? And how do we continue to really have that mindset? Because I think it's true in life. I think this is true in business. Is that it's about how you build, not sort of the end state of what you build. Because there's there's no end state, right? As you know. That said, where we're going and sort of our our target right now is. You know, our goal is to really transform how materials are brought to market and to address that in a big way where we're creating local jobs and carbon negative materials so that we can hit net zero as a sector. That's sort of stepping stone number one. But I think something that I care a ton about, you know, a lot of folks are are sort of opening up to this idea now as well, is that reaching net zero or carbon neutral as a company, as a country, as a globe is doing exactly nothing for our planet. It's literally doing net neutral. Like you're, you're cumulatively, you do all this work and you've done nothing. You've done nothing to help undo this crisis that we're facing. And so what we're focused on is really pushing into carbon negativity. And our goal is to be the first global scale carbon negative company. And that is in its lifetime, holistically, really scientifically, driving down carbon emissions. And, you know, there's lots of different companies that are doing that. And I hope that there are a hundred that beat us there because that's what we need as a planet. But our goal is to, to really get there at scale. And what that ultimately looks like is the ability for anybody to purchase materials that don't negatively impact the planet, that don't harm, harm our world. And if you think about pretty much every company ever, 
as they get bigger, their impact on the planet gets worse. The more cars you sell, the more emissions you create. And so that's true for pretty much every single product in the world. For us, the more boards we sell, the better our impact on the planet is. And that, I think, is the really exciting idea. And our goal is to, to scale that, you know, to be in cities across the globe, to be in companies across the globe, and to be transforming the materials that we're using. How did you learn to not only create, but to hold such large visions? Where did that come from? Because I'm really, really impressed by that, and I keep seeing it, and I'm real curious. I don't know exactly. I think something that I felt from a very young age is I always hated superhero movies. And I think that there's such a fascination with especially when you're like a little kid, like everybody wants to be Superman or Batman, you know, or whatever it is. And there's such a cultural, you know, zeitgeist and attention around having some mythical pseudo alien creature with magical powers come down and save the earth. And I think that that is such a reflection of what I view as some really weak thinking from us as a species is that that's not what happens. You don't get bit by some, you know, magical spider that turns you into a superhero. That's not, it's not real. You decide, you decide if you are going to commit your life into trying to address these things. And I, by no means see myself as somebody who's going to like save the world or that I can do that unilaterally. But I believe that it's my job, it's my duty, this comes with having privilege to try in as holistic and as material as way possible to give back and to do that at scale. And I think that something I've learned with running is I, I didn't think I could run a marathon. And then you set your goal for a marathon and you run a marathon, you're like, whoa. Okay. And then I didn't think I could run, you know, a 50K and you do that. And then you run a 50 mile, like, okay. And up and up and up. And you realize that sort of where you, you know, are setting your sights is where you can go. And if you miss or you don't get there, you know, that's part of reality. There's plenty of forces that, that push against that. But I, I just believe that we have a responsibility as a species to think so much bigger than ourselves and that we don't. We do such a bad job. Like we do such a bad job thinking like two years ahead, let alone 20, let alone 100. And I think that this is a moment for humanity that is, like I said this earlier, but it's like it's millennial. It's on the thousand year scale. You know, we are just cresting into having computing as a core part of our life and all of the components of that. We have this climate crisis that is truly at the millennial scale. This is the century that is going to determine the rest of, of this millennium. And we get it right or we get it wrong. We better be trying to get it right. And we better be thinking about, you know, what does 2600 look like? You know, I think those are important things for us to stay connected to. I agree. And the other part I'm wondering about is when you're going through a rough time, when you get kind of flooded by obstacles or something goes wildly wrong or whatever, how do you hold on to or reconnect to that when you're in a darker or more difficult spot? Three things on that. One is I'm a huge believer that like 90 to 95% of problem solving happens before you're dealing with the problem. This is an analogy. I, I've done a good bit of wilderness medicine stuff, and it's this idea of putting cards in the deck. And so 
you're in the backcountry and somebody's getting injured, it depends on how many cards are in their deck. Are they, maybe they like just sprained or broke their ankle, but they also, you know, they haven't eaten and they just like lost a family member, right? They have cards out of their deck. You're going to approach that from a care perspective in a different way. And the same, same applies to, I think, all problems and, and to this point of when you get confronted with something that is really hard, it's about putting cards in the deck ahead of time. It's about doing the work. I love therapy. I think it's an incredible, important part of building the foundation, doing reflection, physical health, family connection, all of that. That's putting cards in your deck so that when you encounter that, you know, you're entering from a full place instead of not. I think the second thing I would say is this idea of community strength or sort of shared strength. And I think something that I've learned is that as I share my vision, it gets stronger because if my node in the network of people that are now working for this vision is weak, you know, I'm in a moment where I'm struggling and that totally happens. I then am buoyed by a network and by, you know, community. And that's true with friends. And that's true with lots of different folks, um, you know, on our team and in our sort of business community. And that starts with vulnerability, right? That starts with like being open to actually share. And something we're always trying to get better on is naming that we're imperfect, naming that we are trying to get better and sharing that and like sharing the work and sharing the strength there. And then I think the last thing, which is, you know, maybe a little bit sillier, but it, it works for me is I find that when I look at the moon and remember that we're on a planet, that it helps me just zoom out, right? And again, to this point of telescoping is if you can move away from the immediacy and the passion and, and the provocation of a problem into the perspective of it, oftentimes it's totally different. It's just not as critical and allows you to process it a lot more. Those are some great tools. So for all of you <laughs> listening, <laughs> you've just gotten some some great advice for how to how to deal with or be prepared for uh, difficult or challenging things. I, I think those are, are great. I really love the idea of what you're talking about, about putting cards in the deck. I've not heard it articulated that way before, but I am absolutely a big fan of making sure you're well-resourced as you go into a challenging situation. And I think that is a spot where people often do uh, end up um, in, in some trouble um, because they weren't necessarily prepared. So yeah, but putting cards in the deck, that's a good good way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to drive that point home really quickly is, is it's just like what we were talking about earlier of how do you build storytelling and narrative and how do you invest in the process? That's putting cards in your business deck. That's doing things beforehand that then when your business is challenged or market tanks, whatever it is, it's that's allowing you to go in and have the foundation to deal with what's in front of you. So Ben, one of the things that I like to do with my guests is to talk about a current challenge or obstacle that they are dealing with, dig into that a little bit, uh, do a little coaching work around it and see what we can do to help them um, figure out some ideas for, for how to move through it. So if you're up for playing along, I would uh, love to, to dig into something um, that is currently challenging you in, in the business. Yeah, absolutely. This is one I, I don't feel like I have a resolution on. So maybe that's a, a good one to, to pull apart. Something that I think is interesting that we see sort of in traditional leadership narrative is that it's very important to pass off, basically share the wins on the losses. And I think that that generally is, is something that I really live by. And, and a lot of folks on our team live by what 
I'm seeing with that though, is there's also nuance there and that, you know, part of having leaders on a team who are also respected, who are seen, who are understood is also owning some of those wins. And I think the, the interesting piece that, that we're pulling apart is that I think it's often, you know, and this is true with, with anybody, um, you know, again, a big theme of what we're talking about today is right. Perspective, telescoping, what can you see? What can't you see? And I think we all struggle to see what other people's, what their work looks like. And so one of the interesting things I'm trying to think about across the team, you know, whether it's at leadership level, whether it's at any level in the company is how do you find balance in also owning wins? Because I think we have tended and we have really bought into this idea of always share the wins, but there's some real consequences of that too. You know, I think that can also result in a lack of visibility, a lack of sort of understanding. And it also can position individuals as feeling disconnected from the wins if they're always passing it forward. So just interested in pulling that apart as we as we grow here. I I think that the actually a great topic. I think for for a couple of reasons. One, it, it points out the like all of this uh, traditional business wisdom both has its application and it probably has its limitations. But then number two, the idea of like just because that's what everyone says is is there you know is like mm, maybe not. Um, so I think you've ID there's there's clearly some value in it, but some limit limitations in it. So the first thing I'd be curious about is what sorts of things have you tried to do as far as specifically encouraging or you know telling people to do as far as balancing that and finding that nuance and what's come from those? I think that there's this balance between, you know, and I, again, I think we have erred on the side of share the wins sort of across the board. And I think that that has resulted in a culture of like, generally being like really supportive on sharing the wins. But I think it also has removed a little bit of the idea of like, I as an individual can also really own a win as well. And so again, this is just to the point of there's two sides to all of these pieces. And, you know, I think this is what we're just wrestling with is, you know, there's no perfect solution. And if you do one, there's consequences. If you do the other, there's consequences. But I think what we've observed is that, Culturally, we now have a great sort of nexus and understanding around team success, but we also, I think, have a lower sort of nexus and understanding around individual success. And, you know, there's there's a downside to that. There is a cost to, you know, sort of removing the value of the individual contributor and not, not necessarily the actual value, but more of the sort of celebrated value around that. And so I think that's what I'm trying to pull apart here is you obviously can go too far there. And I think most companies err on the other side where like, you know, it's, it's individual contributor over everything, but how do we find and sort of come back to, you know, a place where it's like you feel empowered and excited as an individual. And you also feel like that connects into the team. So I think that's the the thing that I'm, I'm interested in exploring. I wonder here if there might be something for you to be found in looking at your company values and how if we step away from what's the conventional wisdom was business wisdom or we, we're always told to do but really look at what are your values as a company mm -hmm. say and if you started to think about how you might apply them in this specific context what might that look like i think it's a great question i mean we talked about it but 
you know, one of our values is extreme ownership. And we generally use that as a way to talk about when we deal with a challenge or we're entering a, a point of conflict that we both are taking a hundred percent responsibility for that entire conflict. And if, if you and I are working together, Steve, and I give you something to do, I delegate a task to you and you do it poorly. That's a hundred percent on me. Even if I gave it to you incredibly clearly, if I haven't gotten you motivated or I haven't set you up for success with resources or I haven't done all of these pieces to help you get there, if I can take 100% ownership of that, that's amazing. And same for you, right? Like if you miss on that, if I didn't give you clear instruction, you didn't ask, right? And, you know, you didn't ask for what you need or you didn't set yourself up with whatever's going on in your life to be able to, you know, complete this thing. And so we use it in that way and it's very effective. But I think the other side of this is extreme ownership is also like, when we nail that task, it's like, yeah, that's my win, right? And that's also your win. And I think maybe that's an interesting way to think about it is it's like, I've, I've pushed our team so far away from this idea of mine or I, and I think, we, you know, it's a classic, there's no I in team, you know, and there's, there's truth in that. And I think there's real value in it. But it's also interesting to be like, hey, can we hold, like, do we have the complexity and the ability as a team to not get into an egocentric or negative place with this, but to own wins as individuals and more broadly? And I think part of that, just like this is a dot that's connecting for me right now, is when you win, I won, right? And when, you know, somebody else on our team wins, I won, right? Because they won. And so again, just changing that paradigm a little bit, I think that can go too far, but I also think there's a, a healthy balance in there. I want to encourage you to watch for what we all can do in these cases. There's a little bit of an either or sort mm. of thinking that's emerging here. And I think that's part of where you might be getting stuck. And I'm wondering beyond just the values piece, like I'm thinking about this, like one of the things that I've you know seen in listening about your story and about the, the business is this way of connecting all the different pieces and valuing all the different pieces and their roles and their ways of doing things. And so I don't know if it has to be an either or, kind of like what you were saying at the end there, is is there a way to make it a both and? And what does that look yeah. like? I like that. And I think it is a to the truth, which I think this is basically true with everything is there's a side that's effective and there's a shadow side to it, right? That can be ineffective um, in whatever capacity we're thinking about. To that idea of both and is, is it possible to have the good side of both of those, right? Can we have a really strong, you know, consistent network? And can we have a strong sense of individual individuality and yeah, connection to that? I think that's possible. I need to do more thinking about how we do that tactically, because I think often a sort of meta factor in growing a team is complexity is hard to scale. And certainly when you think about the underpinnings of a business, it is hard to scale nuance. And that doesn't mean it's wrong, but we've erred on the side of focus on the we and we've, I think, driven that home. And so the question I think becomes, can we, without detracting from that, be additive, you know, with uh, another idea or another sort of emotional center for us as a team? 
maybe it's about starting to figure out ways to look at how are all the different eyes a part of the we and how can they be acknowledged both as a part of the we and that the we piece is important but also that the each individual i is an important component there's all the different ingredients here and those contribute their own piece that is valuable and important and that's one part but there is still something in the summation the we that is there too and that's why i said i don't think it has to be an either or and figuring out how you do that is probably something that's going to take some some trial and error some playing with or some thinking but getting messy and, and playing with things that that doesn't seem to be an area that's particularly uncomfortable for you at least there seems to be a, a real willingness to embrace that so yeah I, I love that i think that the the nuance there or the tactical way that it, we're going to need to explore with that is you know we actually do a good job on the team like if you were on the team you would hear feedback like steve you're doing really well on this and that's like giving an individual person direct feedback and both positive and the negative but what we don't have space for is and we tend to not have sort of a, a culture around is you saying hey i feel like i did great work on this and then everyone else being like yeah you totally did that was amazing and so figuring out how to add that in that's ah, totally possible. It just has to be framed well, you know, again, to what we were talking about earlier is it doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, I'm going to run, you know, some small tactical session to kick this off at all hands next week and we'll explore it um, and we'll start building it and testing it and, and, you know, do some smaller subgroup framing and then roll it out across the org. I think it's like, you know, I could say I did great work and part of why I was able to do that great work is because I was empowered to do so by, you know, yes. my manager, by the company values, by the people I had around me supporting me. And so it's part of a whole thing. And sure, I did my part and I did it really well. And I'm really proud of that. And it was very an important contribution. And by itself, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have done anything. Right. Yes. This is a team win, yes. but I absolutely played played a role. And I I think it's I think it's good and important to be able to acknowledge ourselves for that and to see because we, we our brains are so predisposed to see the negatives, to see the yeah. downsides that we really do have to work, I think, consciously to stay in touch with those positives. But again, seeing them in context. And I, I think personally, that's where this tends to break is we kind of, we stop thinking about that. People get too caught up in me, 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 not me as a part of we. Here's my part. Here's your part. Here's all these other elements to it. I love it. And I, I think one of the most resonant things you added in that, that framing and sort of your positioning there is without the team, without others, what I did doesn't matter at all, you know? And I did it and it matters because we all did it and it matters. And I, I think that is, that feels relatively intuitive. I think it's, it's more interesting of how do we, how do you do that without getting into the meme? Because I think we all see the world through our own eyes, you know, so you're naturally predisposed into that. And so I like that framing and we got to, I'm going to go roll it out. And I, I would argue that again, there are places in your company, you are already doing some version of the I and the we, and mm -hmm. in how some of your telescoping that you were talking about, right. And, yep. and helping people both be focused on their work, but see their work in the context of the big picture and that sort of thing. This, this dynamic of both and already exists all over your company, all over your business and your structures. 
right? It's there and it's there again. It's, I see a lot of it in what you've talked about with your values. And so I think this is a space where sometimes what we need to do is we get those messages from here's how you're supposed to do it and all these kind of things. And we sometimes do well to step away from that and think about how do we do things and how, what is working and what is not, and what can we adapt right from one space to another? Is there something we can translate over? And I think, so that's what I was saying. I think you've already got a lot of the concepts and ideas or things you can pull or tweak from other places to apply here that would allow you to find a way to do this that is completely in line with your values and very similar to how you operate elsewhere anyway, which is the kind of thing that becomes, I think, very easy to implement because people already get it. It's like, yeah, this is the same kind of thing that we're doing here. I, I really like that. And I think you just like zooming in on it for a moment. Personally, I think that part of this, and, and this is part of my role as a leader is to lead from the front and to embody these things. And I think part of why we culturally are avoidant of the I and the ownership just because I'm avoidant of it, you know, and I think when it comes to, I find this across the board is that, you know, when I have some insecurity of mine, it, it reflects across the team, you know, in a, in a big way. Um, and I think that part of this is, I don't know if I've understood in myself how to take credit for things. I think I've learned very effectively how to share credit for things, but I don't know if I've found a space where it's like, wow, I feel comfortable taking that and framing it and sharing it in the way, like, again, it's, it's an and right. But it's, it's half of that. Then half of that doesn't feel developed in my own understanding narrative ability to talk about it. And so, yeah, just recognizing that this also starts with me owning and processing some of that insecurity as well. I think another place where people can get stuck around this, and this might be true for you, but also more in the company level is we, we can focus on the achievement or the accomplishment and as the thing of like, I'm great, or there's this great thing. And what we maybe in that lose sight of, or the more important thing to be connected with is our skill, our ability, our capability. I can do great things. I can yes. do these sorts of things and owning that, our capability, and then celebrating the wins as, as reflections or manifestations of that. But when we can own that capability, I think that's what can really be empowering for us because it allows us to take bigger and bolder action. You run a marathon, you're like, oh, I can do this. Maybe I can do something bigger and own that. It's the same idea. And so I think that's a, that's a way we can frame it that can sometimes help remove the piece that starts to one, look like ego, but two also is like, again, the less important part to me because sometimes you do great work. And it doesn't work out <laughs> any yeah. number of things, right? Anyone who's, anyone who's played sports or just dealt with life knows that. But sometimes, but if we keep doing the right things, if we build our skills and we take action on our skills, that will produce wins. And owning our skills is, I think, so important to be able to do things that are bigger and to really contribute in the way we can. And so I'm, I'm finding myself wondering, I'm like, maybe that's a, a place where for you, there might be a little bit of possibility for you to work on expanding and growing that. I love that. I think that, you know, what you're touching on there and, and we're sort of touching on this throughout, but it's, again, it's this idea of we're so trained to think about things as having endpoints or having sort of static states, right? It's like, we just had a great win, but it's not about that. And oftentimes there's a lot of luck and other forces that 
drive outcomes. What we can control is our process, right? And I think that's what we're talking about with capabilities is it's it's the verb, not the noun, right? It's the active, you know, component of it. And yeah, I think that's totally right. And I, I think that's an interesting way to maybe start centering this is, you know, on whatever it is, like on a project or an initiative is like, hey, I feel like I ran a really great process on this or I learned really quickly and did a great job testing here. And those are the things that ultimately like really matter from the eye's perspective is that can you, can you run well? It's not about, can you finish? It's like, can you run really well? And when you focus on that, it also helps point to the, how could I run better? Mm-hmm. Right. I run well, and maybe I could run even better versus, you know, I won this race, which is like, okay, that's great, but it's over and done. You know, yeah. the, the, again, the wins are reflections of the process and involve that. So again, they deserve to be celebrated, but they're more of a cool, we're on course. We're moving where yes. we want to go. Not we're done. Not we're there yet. It's like, cool. We're, we're on more. It's a, we're on track is how I often think about it. Yeah. I think that's completely right. And to, again, to the, we were talking about earlier, how do you how do you maintain a big perspective? I think a lot of it is that because, you know, as soon as you finish a thing, and I think this is what you see with a lot of people who get lost, um, you know, who have tied whether individually or even teams into like one core sort of outcome and they either achieve that outcome or they fail that outcome. And then there's no, there's no next. And this is, this is there's lots of that thinkers and folks who have put this out there before, but I think it's really true. It's just that it's about doing it's it's about process, right? And if you do that process really well, then you can zoom out. I think if we can build in more of a culture for us internally around individual process in addition to our very team centric process, yeah, it's a, it's a big win. I'll be curious to hear how that goes and how the implementation of it goes. Cause I think it's a, a great, great idea. I think it's such an important topic that doesn't always get the attention that, that it deserves, but it really shows to me your, your commitment to both team and the members of the team. Yeah. Working on it for sure. So Ben, for people who want to learn more about Cambian Carbon, what you're up to, what's coming next and all of that, what's the best way for them to you know find you, connect with you, learn about you? I would love to stay in touch and always, you know, excited to have people reach out and connect. Cambiumcarbon.com, you know, we have a newsletter, which is a great way to to stay in touch, you know, on all the social channels there. If you're interested with connecting with me individually, I'm most active on LinkedIn. You can find me there, Ben Christensen. And then um, you can also find me on other social channels as Save Carbon. Um, So it's not Save Carbon, Save Carbon, you know, can't say it's my best work, but, uh, you know, that's, that's the title we got. Ben, thanks so much for the conversation and just on a bigger level for what you're doing on the, in the context of the world to say it really is truly important work. It's innovative work. It's really interesting. And I, I really am grateful for you and that work and that there are people like you out there and really, really enjoyed digging into this, this stuff. Back at you. Appreciate the the nuance and nuance and complexity in the conversation today. And yeah, just what you do to, to elevate ideas that matter. So appreciate that.